Well, good morning. Whether you come here regularly or this is your first time at Redeemer, we hope that you experience the welcome of Christ, uh, that you are warmly greeted here this morning. My name is Dan Adams. I'm one of the pastors. We have a few announcements to get started. First, uh, on November 5th, we are having our town hall. You may have seen the uh, slide up before, uh, reminding you to sign up uh, for that. This is going to be a a meal and then uh, a forum uh, hosted by the session. So uh, dinner is, is, uh, lunch is is mainly provided, uh, but there is a sign up for uh, bringing some extra uh, things that are needed. Uh, so please uh, be sure to sign up and let us know if you are if you are attending, so that we can make sure that we have enough food. Uh, so that's November fifth, and the sign ups are right there in the narthex or the foyer or the open space, whatever you call it. It's on the high top tables there. Uh, we'd also uh, remind you of the upcoming parenting conference lunch. Uh, sign up for lunches are closed, uh, but you can still uh, sign up to let us know that you're coming. Uh, lunch won't be available, but but you can still attend. Uh, the conference is free, so in, feel free to invite uh, friends and family. Maybe go out and uh, grab a meal after some of the the times and and uh, reflect uh, with some friends over uh, over a good dish for that. Uh, so that's the third and fourth of November. And then uh, the Sunday school today, there's a little bit of an adjustment due to uh, illness and, and such. Uh, the high school group will be meeting in here in the adult Sunday school class. We're going to be talking about utilizing your time as a family. Uh, so high schoolers will join with a parenting class. Uh, and also the ministry to moms is, uh, feel free to come in here as well. Uh, you're, you're welcome to bring if you've got um, a you know, a little uh, with you, that's perfectly fine. Uh, we welcome them as well. Uh, so those are all our, our announcements. Let's take a moment now and prepare to worship our God. Our call to worship this, this morning reminds us of who our God is, uh, this God that we come to worship. He is kind and merciful to his people. He is, he is good. He is a good God uh, that we might worship him and know him and love him both now and for, for, forever. Uh, and our, our psalm for this morning is Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6. It says, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. 
God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Let's stand and sing to this God. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we do long for that day when we will join the everlasting song, when our faith will be turned to sight, Lord, when we will no longer behold in a a dimly lit mirror, Lord, but that we would see you face to face and delight in you for all eternity, Lord, we pray that you would give us a a small foretaste of that this morning as we join as your people to worship you and offer you the praise that you desire from us. Lord, we do not understand why you want us, why you would love us, and yet you have shown us how great your love for us is 
in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, so help us to comprehend the greatness of your love this morning, even as we, we offer our worship and praise to you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to praise with Lead Me, Lord. You may be seated. This morning, our scripture reading in our unison confession of faith, we're continuing through our series looking at the larger catechism and looking at um, what does the law require of us. And this morning, we're, we're, we're actually not going to be reading the, the commandment, you shall not uh, kill. Uh, you shall not murder. Uh, but instead, we're going to be looking at a passage from the New Testament that, that explains that in some way, that, that develops that. And what we'll see is, is that Jesus is, is developing that command in a way that, that we're meant to see that affecting our entire life. Uh, that that doesn't merely reflect upon our, our actual murdering uh, with our hands, but in our hearts and in our mind as well, that we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. And that speaks even to our deepest thoughts and our passions. So considering First Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to, the, to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And then we see that what are the sins forbidden in the second or in the sixth commandment let's say this together the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are 
all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. We see there that the command not to murder extends to the concern that we are to have for the life of another person, even in our hearts and the way that we regard them, that we would put to death our anger and that we would seek to love one another, uh, even those who have done us wrong. And so let's now go to the Lord and confess to him uh, the ways that we uh, have harbored, uh, that we've nurtured anger in our hearts and confess to him uh, those places where we've fallen short of his law, uh, that we might find uh, comfort and assurance of pardon from him as well. So let's go to our God. Our Lord, in one of our other confessions, Lord, we confess that you are the Lord and giver of life, that you are the life, the Lord who, who breathes life into your, your, your people, Lord. And yet so very often, Lord, our, our thoughts are turned to frustration and anger and even hatred of one another. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of the unkind and provoking words that we have used. Lord, forgive us that we may have even struck someone else. Lord, forgive us. Lord, as we saw, forgive us of, of our excessive use of, of things that are meant to bring us comfort, Lord. Instead of looking to you for our life. Lord, forgive us. We ask that you grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear your truth. Lord, but that you'd also grant us the feet to go and the hands to do the things that pleases you. Lord, we trust that you are willing and able because you have filled us with your spirit that we might walk in your truth. So Lord, lead us. Help us to know you more deeply and follow you more truly, that we would honor you in how we regard one another. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have trusted in Christ, confess your sins to him. Trust that these words are true for you from 1 John. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What good news we have in Jesus. Let's stand and sing to Him before the throne of God above. Let us join together and give thanks to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity that we have to gather together in this place to worship you. And Father, we thank you for all those that you have gathered here at Redeemer. We thank you that we can rejoice with those who rejoice, that we can celebrate uh, milestone birthdays and anniversaries celebrate births and baptisms. Lord, you've richly blessed us and we give you thanks for that. We thank you as well that we can come together and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and to walk alongside those who uh, face uh, illnesses and struggles. Um, we just thank you that um, together that we can be the body of Christ and, uh, and reach out to one another. 
And we thank you for those uh, tender moments, Lord, when we know that you are near. We thank you as well for your word and for the preaching of your word. And we thank you for our pastors. Uh, We thank you for uh, their diligence. We thank you for their faithful preaching and uh, and shepherding us and walking alongside of us and, and leading us, Lord, and helping us to see Christ. And we pray this morning that you would be with uh, Pastor DeBoer as he comes and brings your word. Pray that you would fill him with all that he stands in need of. Pray that you would give him strength and power as he proclaims uh, the good news of the gospel. And we pray that you would help us to hear well your words, Lord, and that hearts and lives would be changed having heard the good news of the gospel. And we thank you for the many blessings that you have given us. And we thank you for uh, a time that we can give back a portion of that which you have given to us. And we also pray, Lord, that you would um, help us uh, to use the, the time and the talents that you have given us as well. You have blessed each and every one of us uh, with talents and gifts, Lord. And we pray that we would use those um, to impact those around us in our families and in our community. And we thank you, Lord, for our Savior. We thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sinless Savior who died. And we thank you that we can be set free, set free in this life and set free in the life to come when there will be no more sorrow, no more pain. And as Pastor DeBoer preached last Sunday, the possibility of those things will not even exist in heaven. And we give thanks to you, Lord, for that. And we pray that you would help us each and every day uh, to live in light of the gospel and of your love. And we thank you for your grace and mercy upon us. We thank you for your steadfast love. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
This is the time before we go before our God in intercessory prayer. I'm aware that there is a lot of illness going around. Uh, my wife pointed out to me that there's something that is identified as specifically as Forest Hills, a unique virus to Forest Hills. So if you live in that area and you're having a hard time breathing or talking, coughing, earaches, I guess that's what's going around. So we're going to pray for that this morning. I want to point out a connection in the book of Hebrews before we go to our congregational prayer. It comes in the middle of chapter 12 where the writer says, "'Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord.'" And then he goes on to say, see that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble by which many became defiled. And then in the next section he says, for you have not come to what may be touched. And he talks about Mount Sinai where the people were afraid to go near to the mountain because it shook and there was fire. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable number of angels in festal gathering." The writer of Hebrews says that's where we're coming in worship. And that affects not only our sense of who we're worshiping and how we worship, but also how we care for and love each other. I don't know if you think about that very often, but what you think of God will naturally affect what you think of those around you. And so this morning we want to lift up God and then each other in that order. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, often our eyes are very blinded to the reality of what is going on. We see only what happens in our lives, and there are many things that are happening. Maybe we've gone through this week, and we've had a very joyful week full of lots of successes. Maybe we've been promoted at work. Maybe we've received the news that we're expecting another child. Maybe we've had a phone call from a long-lost friend that has cheered our hearts. There are so many reasons to be thankful. And Lord, there are also on the balance of life other things that have been challenges for us. Maybe this week has not gone as well. Maybe there have been struggles at work and home and in our own hearts. And we come here this morning, again, thinking about what has happened in this prior week. And most of what our minds focus on, in fact, most of what we are trained to do is to view our lives on that, on that horizontal plane to view what is happening in our lives and our world from the perspective of our involvement in it and what we can do to change it. And that includes the way that we think about those around us, those within our families and our communities and our church. Maybe there are some that we really enjoy, others we find more difficult. Maybe even this morning we're struggling with that root of bitterness that Hebrew says it springs up in relationships between people. Lord, maybe we're struggling with loving someone who is hard to love. Lord, you know how difficult that can be for us. And then in the middle of our lives with all this going on, we come here to worship. And the writer lifts our eyes from simply seeing each other and our lives and all that it involves and things that are important and good and matter. But he lifts up our eyes and says, do not forget where you have come in worship. It is not to that mountain as impressive as it was in the Old Testament with the smoke and the fire and the earthquake. But you've come into the very presence of God with the saints gathered around the throne of Jesus and with the angels worshiping our Savior, that is where you come and worship. And Lord, lift up our eyes this morning to see that that's actually true. 
that we are not here simply worshiping in this horizontal plane, but we have been lifted to the very heavenly places where Christ is seated. And this prayer is more than just limited by the ceiling in this room, but our prayer goes up before the God of the universe who hears and is promised to answer. And Lord, we are deeply grateful. We're grateful in so many ways. We're grateful that this is true. Because without it, we would be a bitter people. We would be frustrated. We would be angry. We would wonder what life is about. We would find human relationships always difficult because we'd always be asking the question, and what do I get from this? Why aren't you pleasing me more? Why are you giving me so much grief? But Lord, when we look to you, we see that you are a kind and merciful God. We can see your power all around us. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that when we were even driving here today. For what we can see and what we can hear and what we can smell, you are God who has made and upholds this universe, and we love it. But even more, you're a merciful God. Lord, to imagine that into a world as beautiful as this, we have introduced evil and you in your kindness have sent your son to turn back that evil. That is an amazing thought. And then you welcome us into your very presence and worship. Lord, there's no explanation for that except you are kind. And we pray that during this service and during... Uh, those hours when we are outside of worship, but we are still before your face, that you would help us, that you would train our minds to see that we are living before you, that you are the God who we serve, that as Paul says, when we work, we're doing it for you and not for our employer only, when we're functioning as a husband or wife or child or parent, as a friend, as a neighbor. In that relationship, we're called to love the other, but we are especially called to love you as we are loving those around us. Lord, we pray for that this morning. And we pray that this would be a body in which the transformative power of Jesus Christ is so apparent that others would see that and be amazed. How could people love to worship so much? How could they love each other? It's simply not what is typical and we pray then that this worship would not only affect the way we view you, but also the way that we pray and intercede in behalf of others. And we do that now. We pray for Elle Platt. Thank you for bringing her home from the hospital. We ask for her continued recovery, that she would breathe easier. We pray for Steve as he cares for her, that you would also give him strength. We pray for those who struggle with long-term illnesses, those that we have noted in our bulletins and others who are not noted there, even those who are struggling just with whatever it is that is infecting our community. Lord, you are a God who is able to heal, and we pray that you would. And Lord, beyond that even, we pray for the way in which conflict and anger is not only between individuals, but between nations and peoples. We cannot but stop and think for a moment about the bombs that are falling in the Middle East as we are here praying. It is our desire that justice would reign. We pray along with the Old Testament prophets that justice would flow down from the mountains until there is no place in which that justice is not found. 
We are grateful to confess as we have this morning that there are times for just war. There are times where we are called by the nature of the commandments to defend ourselves. And we pray that this would be a time in the Middle East in which justice is done. That lives are spared, Lord, and that you would bring peace. Father, there are many other things we could pray about this morning, but we especially pray now for your help as we come to your word. Thank you again for giving us the Gospel of John, which is designed by its its explanation inherent to it. It's designed to tell us the reasons why we ought to believe in Jesus and Jesus alone, why he is so compelling. And our prayer this morning is that we hear, we would hear that compelling character of the gospel in John chapter 9 this morning. Give us the ears to hear and the hearts to respond, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are turning to John chapter 9 this morning. It is a rather long story, but it is uh, one story in itself, and rather than breaking it up into various parts, I've decided to read the whole thing. There are 41 verses. Again, you're welcome to follow along as I read, or you can also listen If that's easier for you, I find often as I'm reading this, I'm trying to imagine in my mind what is happening. It is a compelling story. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, hear the true and inerrant word of God. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is light, uh, while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says it is. As some said, it is. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, Man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. 
But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? (laughs) And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God. I was meeting with another pastor this past week when he told me about a project he had begun in his congregation two years ago. He performed 13 funerals in his congregation, and you say, well, of course, it was COVID. He reminded me that only one of them was COVID-related. He began this project because he was bothered by the ignorance he had of many of the testimonies of those he was burying. So he made it his project over the next number of years to go to the older folks in his congregation and ask them, what would you like for me to say about you when I am performing your funeral? Okay, so I'm asking you a similar kind of question this morning. What would you hope that I would say about you when it is time for your funeral? Maybe you think that's a long ways off. I've never even thought about that question. I am surprised that a number of you have come to me wanting to discuss what I will say about you when you die. I think that's actually a really good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a recognition of the fact we will not live forever. In fact, all of us are going to die. And when we do, there is a very apt time to answer the question, what would we want people to know about us? Or to put it this way, in the grandest possible words, what matters most about my life? Is it my accomplishments professionally? Is it my family and how well they have turned out? What is it for you? What matters most? What gives you that purpose in life? 
Well, as ironic as it seems, this particular passage that I'm reading this morning from John chapter 9 tells us a very surprising answer to that question. And this is the way I'm going to put it, and then I'm going to explain it to you in four parts. This passage tells us that at least, part, at least part of what we pursue as our purpose in life is the recognition that even though we were born blind, we now see. And God is using that in ways that we could never even imagine. Now you think, Pastor, I'm not sure about the connection between the two, so let me explain. And I start with the first three verses of this chapter which are truly remarkable verses, and they address what many of us would want to ask about the problem of evil. How is it that evil exists in this world, and how do we explain the fact that it affects us so radically? To understand why the question is asked, you need to think again where we are in the Gospel of John. There's this big scenery change that has occurred at the beginning of chapter 9. Up to this point, Jesus has been at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's left that feast. The feast is over. Eight days of celebration are done, and now Jesus is walking in Jerusalem. And he sees a man who was born blind. He's notorious to the point where the writer notes he was blind since birth. Later on we find out he was a beggar. So a lot of people knew him. Of all the people Jesus could have selected in order to talk to and we find out heal, this man was one of the most notorious. People knew him. Everyone knew he was the blind man. And his presence occasions one of the great questions of human existence. Jesus is asked, Rabbi, teacher, tell us why this man is blind. Was it because he sinned or was it because his parents sinned? There's all kinds of loaded assumptions in that question. But in the disciples' minds, there were two possibilities. Either it was his fault or the fault of his parents. The question is, Where is the blame going to be pinned? Now, if you're asking yourself the question, why in the world would they ask this? Well, I would simply ask you a question in return. How often have you not asked yourself the question, what did I do wrong so that I am suffering like this? Now I feel like I'm going to just disappoint you. Because Jesus doesn't answer their question. He does not say it was him, it was his parents, it was the presence of sin in the world, it was Adam and Eve's fault. Let me launch into a long explanation of the problem of evil in this world. God is sovereign, God is loving, and sin still still remains. How is that possible? Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents, that is, he is saying, your two possibilities, I'm not going to take either, But he says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now let me give you a word of caution before I explain that. Jesus is not saying that human beings are not responsible for the presence of sin in this world. And I would even add, there are times where we can see pretty direct connections between our sin and then some of the consequences we suffer. That's a different sort of discussion. 
Jesus is not answering that question. He is not addressing the question of fault. Listen to this. Instead, he is addressing the purpose of this man's suffering. Not whose fault that it is. The Bible talks about that in other places. Instead, Jesus says, I want to talk to you not about how this happened, but really why it happened. That is, what is God doing in it? To put it this way, this man was born blind, Jesus says, so that you can learn something about the way that God works. And there is so much in this passage. Oh my word, when I looked at this passage and studied it and then thought, how in the world I'm going to preach 41 verses to you, it requires me to discipline my time. But these first three verses are so important, I cannot help but tell you, if you don't understand the question, you're going to wind up with the wrong answer. The question that is being asked here is, what is the purpose in this man's suffering? What will God do in it? There are plenty of other places in the Bible that help us understand how sin came into the world and how it affects us. I'm very thankful for that. Just don't confuse the question with the one being answered here. If it sounds like I'm belaboring this, I am. Because it is one of the things that we often struggle with most in life. We tell ourselves, if I only understood who's to blame, I could make sure that I would never suffer again. If I could only understand why this happened, that is, and whose fault it is, I could pin the blame on the right person. It's my husband's fault. It's my children's fault. It is my parents' faults. It is my doctor's faults. But Jesus' answer sets up the rest of the story so that Jesus will answer this question. What will God do with the effects of sin in this man's life? What is God doing now that this man is born blind? The second part of this passage, in verses 4 through 7, gives us at least part of the answer. The man goes from blind to, I can see, and it's a very fascinating sort of way that Jesus does this, Jesus points out the primary way in which God will work in this world when there is evil, and that is Jesus brings mercy. That's one of the ways that God is at work. And that becomes very obvious in verses 4 through 7 in the way that Jesus responds to this man. First, he tells him that the reason that Jesus came into the world is to work the works of God. In other words, he's saying to this man, you want to know, or to his disciples, you want to know whose fault it is. I'm about to tell you for what purpose it is. And here's one of the ways you can understand the purpose of suffering. And that is you can understand my work only if you see clearly the effects of sin. It's sort of this, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Second, Jesus proclaims that he himself brings that light. It is easy for us to see. It is not as easy, I should say, for us to see in our translations than it is, I would tell you, in the original. Jesus is saying he is one, the one who brings light to the one who is in darkness. 
We read about that at the beginning of this book. John introduces Jesus by saying the word was the light of men. Remember that? But now in the story, in John chapter 9, we see the reality of this. Here's a man who is in utter darkness, and Jesus is about to bring him light. In a world that was so dark, physically and spiritually, And this man certainly wondered it at point, will there ever be light for me at all? Will I ever see again? Here is Jesus. And what Jesus says is, I am here to work the works of God. And what is the work of God? That evil, hear this, that evil and every effect of evil would eventually be destroyed. And if you want to see how that's true, Jesus says, watch this. And he spits into the dirt, the same dirt that Genesis says that God formed man out of. And Jesus, the mediator of all creation, the one through whom human beings were made, this mediator spits into the dirt there and he creates a paste with his saliva and places it on the man and the man is healed. And to emphasize that he sends the man to the pool called the scent. (laughs) He says, go to the place that I am sending you, a public place. One of the most public places in all of Jerusalem. The pools of Siloam. Wash there and you will see. I want you to listen carefully to the first way in which this passage is good news for you this morning. Jesus has the power and intention to defeat evil. He is powerful. He is merciful. And he works the work of God now. And he will bring that work to completion eventually. It does not matter the presence of sin in your world, whatever that presence is. It could be of your own origin. For many of us, that's true. We have brought things upon ourselves. It could be an effect of sin that you had nothing to do with. You're suffering because of sin's presence in this world. Maybe you're blind. Maybe you can't hear. Maybe you're suffering with a terminal illness. Maybe you're struggling in some other way. Whatever that way is, What this miracle of Jesus emphasizes so clearly is that Jesus is the light of the world. Wherever there is darkness, Jesus will bring light. He will overcome. Do you hear that? It's true. Jesus will overcome. He is the light of the world. That's good news for those of us who have blind and are blind this morning. But here's the thing about this passage, and this is the third thing I want you to see, and that's the depth of the evil in this passage. Most of this passage is spent on the Jews' objection to what Jesus has done. That's verses 8 through 34. That's a lot of verses. And the reason there is so much recording of their objections to Jesus is that you would expect. Maybe you imagine yourself in this story and you think, if I saw someone who was blind, somebody who I knew in my community, and Jesus came and gave them light, what would my response be? I would run to Jesus and say, you must be the light. Don't fool yourself. Do not fool yourself, friends. There are a lot of reasons 
that come into our hearts that would keep us from believing in Jesus. And there are a couple of them noted here. Remember, these were Jews, people who studied the Scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They confessed a longing for the coming of the Messiah. Their entire family line from Abraham onward was trained to look for Jesus. And now Jesus came and performed this miracle. And they say, whoa, you think you're the Messiah? There are really two attempts in their objection. Twice they try to figure out how Jesus could not have possibly healed this man. It is impossible for Jesus to be the light that overcomes darkness. The first objection to Jesus is that he did this on the Sabbath. Even if this man could see, and first they question that, are you really this man? Is it possible for you to be this man? They've got to check with people. They check with people who knew him. They check with his parents. Is this really your son? Was he really born blind? And once the evidence is overwhelming, their objection is this. Well, you did it at the wrong time. How could you do it on the Sabbath, Jesus? That's crazy. For then the Sabbath was a big rule with lots of rules to support The big rule. If you're interested in what the Sabbath is all about, come back tonight. Pastor Dan is going to preach about the fourth commandment. I can say this part, and I don't think I'm going to steal his thunder for tonight. The Jews misunderstood. The Sabbath was not designed, first of all, as a way to limit human beings. No, the Sabbath was given to us as human beings before even sin entered the world to express the true freedom we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe I can just illustrate it this way. Are you enjoying true freedom in Jesus Christ this morning as you worship? This should be the freest moment in your existence. The Sabbath day with its freedom was meant to point us to the true freedom ultimately that we'll have in Jesus Christ. That's why the Sabbath exists. And so the notion that Jesus could heal in the Sabbath, it seemed impossible to these Jews. It demonstrated incredible mercy, a mercy that again anticipated the coming reality when all things would be made right. But for these Jews, couldn't be. (laughs) No chance. Because if Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he was really attacking not only their understanding of a commandment, he was attacking the structure of their religion that had no room for mercy at all. Which led to their second attempt. After confirming again with his parents that Jesus did in fact heal their son, the Jews object in a slightly different version of their original objection. They double down. They challenge this man to give glory to God. What could be more religious? Give glory to God, they're saying. You're giving credit to this man? Give glory to God. And in order to explain, they say, we are the rightful followers of Moses. How in the world can you give glory to God without following Moses? They say, we take our direction from the lawgiver, not the one who shows mercy on the Sabbath. 
Why would you want to follow the one who shows mercy? Instead, look at Moses. And yet, over and over, the problem they're running into, beyond even their misunderstanding of the law of God, the problem they run into is so incredible, it cannot help but bring you a smile and maybe a chuckle to your heart. The problem they have is that the man's eyes are actually opened. How can they object? Jesus did it on the Sabbath. He is receiving their praise for what has happened. And as much as they object to how this is not right, his eyes are actually opened. He was in the darkness, now he is in the light he sees. And the great irony of this passage, such delicious, wonderful irony is that it is the Jews who are suffering the blindness, not this man. And the blindness they are suffering is not with their eyes, it is with their hearts. They cannot see Jesus as he truly is. They are spiritually blind. Do you see that? They're objecting to this man who had his eyes opened from hearts that are spiritually blind. That is why John takes so much time to record this in order to impress upon us the deliciousness of the irony. To stress it a bit, the depth of the evil operating in the lives of these objectors is so deep they cannot see Jesus for who he truly is. Given the proof of the miracle, they seek to find any way to avoid the truth. They hide behind the law. They confess just trying to do the right thing. But if in our rights, seeking to do the right, we are not in Christ, I can tell you, friend, we are also spiritually blind. I know how easy that comes to many of our hearts. I'm just trying to do the right thing. I want other people to do the right thing. Just do what's right. Do what's right. But if our do what's right does not honor Jesus Christ, we are also spiritually blind. We confess to be in the light, but in fact, we are in darkness. Which brings me to the fourth part of this story. In verses 35 through 41, it is the summary of what happened, sort of the concluding scene Jesus learned that they cast him out of the synagogue. Maybe that doesn't make a big difference to you. It's like, well, why didn't he just go to another one? Synagogue, schminagogue, whatever. Go from one to the next. Didn't work like that. The synagogue was not only the place you worshipped. It was the center of your religious community. It was your community. If you left there, there was no other place to go. You didn't just go to the next synagogue. No, that wasn't your synagogue. You went here. What they have done is remove him from all social connection. Remember, they threatened his parents, and his parents said, well, what do you want us to say? Now this man is convinced to the point that he does not give them the answer they want, and they pull the pin on the only power grenade they have. That is, we can remove you from the synagogue, and they do. And now Jesus sees this man. He finds him and he asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man responds, who is that? And Jesus said, I am him. You have seen him and hid as he was speaking to you. 
I am the Son of Man. I've said this before. I need to emphasize it again to you. The Son of Man is one of the most common ways of the gospel writers referring to Jesus. Why do they refer to, the, to Jesus this way? It is not primarily to emphasize his humanity. It is to emphasize his divinity from Daniel chapter 7. Where the Son of Man is seen in the throne of heaven. And when Jesus asked him, do you see the Son of Man? He's not asking him, do you see with your eyes that I am here? He's asking him, do you see me in all the glory of my divinity? And the man says, I do. I see you. I know who you are. And verse 38 emphasizes that by saying, and the man worshiped Jesus. The very thing that the Jews said, don't do that, give glory to God. This man now gives glory to God. He gives glory to the Son of God come in the flesh. So here's the question for you this morning. Why is this recorded for us? Why is this here that we might know the works of God that Jesus is working according to the first three verses? How does Jesus answer the question that I raised at the beginning about the purpose for which this man was born blind? Remember, he rejects the question of, well, tell us who's at fault. The Bible answers that in other places. Instead, he focuses their, uh, their attention on the question and give me the purpose Jesus said it is so that the works of God might be seen. Okay, here's the point in the sermon in which you can rightfully ask me the question, so pastor, what is the purpose for this man's blindness? I've already sort of led you halfway there when partway through the sermon I said part of the reason that this man was born blind was so that he could come to see Jesus and the power of Jesus would be displayed in him. I don't want to pass by that too quickly. I know some of you carry tremendous burdens in your hearts and lives. Let me tell you again, one of the great purposes that God has for you to walk through that suffering, suffering that may have endured for many, many years, is that God delights that the glory of His Son and His healing power, the mercy that He has for you, will be seen in your life. I know when I say that it doesn't take away the suffering, but what it does tell you is this, there's a purpose in it. Part of what really frustrates us as human beings is when we walk through things and we cannot understand the purpose. Let me tell you again, now in a more exalted language, part of the purpose for your suffering is the highest purpose the world would ever have, and that is that Jesus will be glorified in you. Do you believe that? If you can honestly say that you believe that, let me tell you, your blindness has not gone to waste. But let me add to that something else. I said you were halfway there. Let me bring you home if I can. The reason why John records this story and the reason why Jesus tells this man, you are now able to see the reason it's in John chapter 9 is so that you would know not only that Jesus and the power, the mercy of Jesus can be seen in you in your suffering, 
It is even more, can I say, it's built upon that fact, upon that foundation is built this reality. You were born blind, you were suffer as this man suffer, so that other people through the glory that you give to Jesus can then come to see. If I can put it this way, your suffering has not only a vertical dimension, that is that Christ would be glorified, from that vertical comes a horizontal. People will see in your life that you were born blind so that like you, they can eventually see. Now when I tell you that, I am not confessing to know exactly how that is working in your life. Maybe your suffering is a testimony to those around you, even in your own home. Maybe your suffering is a testimony to those who know you. Maybe it's a suffering that is a testimony to your community. What if your suffering is precisely what God is using to bring greatest glory to His Son and to bring others to see Him as well? Well, let me ask you again, what if your suffering is not incidental to your life? That's how we often think about it. It's incidental. How can I work past it? How can I make it so it's not there anymore? Let me ask you just this question. What if your suffering, what if my suffering is not incidental to my life, but it is the means by which God is using to testify to others about the mercy he means to display in us? I'm going to end my sermon this morning by telling you about a story in a book. You're probably going to recognize it. I did not read the book first. My wife gave it to me to read. The songwriter Laura Story tells about a relationship with her husband. If you know her story, her husband is now in a very difficult place. He has suffered a great deal. I remember reading, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, paraphrasing, that he can't remember things. You go into the bathroom, and because of how he has suffered physically, he can't remember he went in there to brush his teeth. She has to tell him, brush your teeth. They don't come out of the bathroom, and she cannot know whether he has actually brushed his teeth. Did you brush your teeth? And he can't remember whether he did. So she's got to check the toothbrush. Can you imagine that day after day after day after day? Imagine how frustrating that would be, and how much you'd be tempted to ask, Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Have you never asked that question? And then in her book, she comes to the passage that we're reading this morning in John chapter 9, and wonderfully, she understands the way Jesus switches the question from fault to purpose. And this morning, I want to do the same for you in this sermon. What if you're seeking to bring purpose into your life and all along it is God who has been working his purposes through you? What if your suffering is terrible as it is and I grieve with you? This is not an easy just pass over your grief as though it does not matter. What if your suffering is terrible as it is? It's designed to lead you and others to the day when you will actually see again. What if God is using your suffering, your blindness, so that others will see?
That takes a part of our lives which we ordinarily try to avoid and places it at the very center of God's purposes for you. Let me say it now in the positive. This passage tells us that we were blind so that others can see Jesus. That is gospel news for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I would tell you this morning, along with these precious people who are here, that we just want things to be right. We don't want suffering. We don't want pain. We don't want sorrow. And it is true that one day that will all be taken away. Our own struggle with sin, the effects of sin in this world, the pain, the suffering that we endure, it'll all be gone. And your word trains us to pray along with the saints in the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But your word also gives meaning to places in life where otherwise we would not find meaning. There would only be despair. And one of those places in which the power of Jesus Christ is on display this morning is in his ability to use suffering to not only glorify himself, but for us to be useful in his purposes in this world. Lord, I'm very conscious that this may strike some of us as a very difficult truth. I pray, Lord, instead of it being difficult, it would be liberating. That we would see that you are so great a God that you can use even this to glorify your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing one of my favorite songs, Jesus Strong and Kind?
We're going to sing one more song before we leave worship. Um, After we sing this song, uh, you receive this blessing and we sing a song. I'd ask you just to be seated. Pastor Dan has something he wants to share with you. And then after he talks, I have something to share as well. And then um, you'll be dismissed. So just be seated after you receive this blessing and we sing our final song. The blessing the Lord gives to you is as old almost as the people of God, where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. You can be seated. I have the unpleasant task of letting you know that I have begun the process of accepting a call to another church. About a year ago, I was reflecting on my time here at Redeemer, how much I've enjoyed getting to serve and reflecting on different parts of it. And as much as I enjoy youth ministry, and I think I always will, I've also found great delight in caring for the grieving and the vulnerable, promoting ministry development and and growing in my preaching. Upon reflection, I started to talk to wise mentors, including Pastor Jeff, about sensing a shift in my call, and each of them agreed that things were changing. In May, Grace OPC in Vienna, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C., reached out to me to ask if I would apply for their open associate pastor position. And after a couple rounds of interviewing and a week of candidating, the congregation 
unanimously voted to extend me the call two weeks ago, and I've indicated my desire to accept it. Although the work there excites me, I want you to know that I do not view this new role as a step up from what I currently do. I think too often youth ministry is viewed as junior ministry until the time comes when you're ready to grow up. The youth and the children of the church are too important to be the training ground of real ministry. It is real ministry. The position is not moving up, but spreading out to do more than I think God has gifted and called me to do. I also want to thank the session for their encouragement and support about discerning this call, especially Pastor Jeff. I have had many friends leave their pastoral position for other churches under bad circumstances, either being forced out or reaching a point where they could no longer serve because of anger or frustration or bitterness. I'm grateful that that's not what this change is about. Five and a half years ago, Nora and I came to Redeemer out of a desire to honor the Lord and follow his leading. And it is that same desire to follow where he leads that has convinced us to go to grace. I know that the timeline is a common question in order to have the required meetings, but also to transition well and make sure things are in order before I go. I've, I've asked January 21st would be my last Sunday, so roughly three months. As I close, I just want to express how thankful I, I am I've been a pastor here, especially to the students I've had in youth group. Paul's words from 1 Thessalonians 2 ring true for me. For what is our hope or our joy or our crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. May God raise up this generation to proclaim the excellencies of his name and delight to do his will. Amen. In just a moment, um, I'm going to pray for Dan and Nora and his family. <clears throat> uh, before I do, I want to give you just a little pastoral advice. Um, this is, seems strange from your side, perhaps. As Dan noted, Dan and I have talked about this for some time. And uh, this is not the first time in my experience where this has happened. Often, however, I'm on the other side, and I know how painful it is. It's very difficult. So I want you to think about a couple of things. The first is, if you can, friends, be grateful. Dan and Nora have been part of our church for five and a half years. And in that time, God has done a lot of incredible things through Dan and Nora as well. Things that you see, but I would also tell you a lot of things that you have never seen and probably never will and yet are great. I want to just highlight one thing. You know, many of you are very thankful for the ministry that we have to dealing with those or helping those who are dealing with abuse in our church, I'm convinced that unless Dan was here, we would have never even thought about that until it was probably too late. That's a kind of thing that Dan has really initiated in our church, and I want you to be grateful for that. And for all the other things, including for your student that you are grateful for, 
This is a time to express him, express to him and to Nora that truth. So do that. I want to say something personal about this. Um, I don't mean to make Dan cry more, but one of the things that I've appreciated about him so deeply is his humility. It is true that often when there are pastoral transitions, there are struggles and animosity and difficulty that lead to it. I would say along with Dan, that has not been the case. In fact, he is one of the most open-hearted people I know. I've told him this privately. I hope you don't mind if I say that publicly. That's really true. And I'm going to miss him tremendously because we have very similar approaches to ministry. But I'm also grateful with him for this opportunity that he has. There are a lot of great parts to that opportunity. And I've said this to Dan, and I mean it. I'm going to miss him personally, but are very excited for him in the call that he's going to. The second thing I'd encourage you to do is to encourage him and his wife. Transitions, even good ones, are very difficult You've got all the parts of saying goodbyes to people you care about, packing packing boxes in the future, finding new doctors when you move there, all sorts of new things with communities. All those things are difficult. So pray for them. Drop them a note of encouragement. um, Encourage them. That they will be going somewhere else. We'll take some adjustments in our church and we'll miss them, but we're going. But they are going to a place where there are good opportunities, and we're thankful for that. And so, again, in my own heart, there is joy mixed with sadness this morning. And even though I'm not crying, (laughs) I've already done my tears, and now I'm just happy for them. We are having a... um, we're having a uh, town hall meeting next Sunday. There are already boxes out there. I'm not suggesting you need to ask questions about this specifically, but if you have any questions, it's a great time to do so. Just drop a note in there, and we can talk about it more generally next Sunday. The last thing I want to do is pray with Dan. So if you can close your eyes and pray with me. Our Father, five and a half years ago, you brought Dan and Nora to this place, and you've added to them Ezra and Phoebe. And now they leave this place fuller and richer than when they came. You've made this a time of growth and relationship and growth and the ability to love and serve God's people. And we are so thankful for the time they have been here and the time that still remains. And we're thankful for all the things that we have seen and so many other things that we will. And we are, Lord, looking to you for your help and for your comfort as well. Lord, we pray to you this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be dismissed.